so I decided that I'm not doing intros anymore. <laughs> You're not? No. So what are we doing? We're just starting. We're just starting. Um, okay. I don't know. I started. No every- cookies, no beer. Oh, oh right I did it. actually. I did actually make a big mistake and not get a cookie. So Common Grounds or um, yeah, Common Grounds in Woodway. Yeah. Started to, I noticed last week that they had like a case of cookies. So I was like, oh, I'm going to get the cookie this uh, for this podcast and forgot. And that's a tragedy and a mistake on my it part. Is. But we will start doing uh, cookies and maybe some other stuff. That sounds good, dude. Um, so we're going right into it. Yeah, going right into it. Okay. Uh, I don't know if we want to have any uh, intro banter. If you are uh, listening to this, um, we're recording this in 2020. 2020. And what that means, if you've read your history book, let's say you're listening to this in 2040, we're recording this in the midst <laughs> of the fog of war. Okay. So um, if our brains seem scrambled, again, if you read your history book, you know why. Okay. Fog of war. Fog of war. Um, we are going to start uh, talking about covenant theology. We're going to do maybe two episodes on covenant theology. That may be nothing to you right now, hmm. but I just want to assure you that in the next two episodes, when we explain covenant theology, it still may mean nothing to you, depending <laughs> on how clear we are. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to talk about covenant theology and what that means. You may have heard that term before, covenant theology. You may be well-versed in it. You've maybe never heard uh, that that term uh, before. And so on this episode, uh, at least we're going to try to do an intro and particularly first talk about why it's important and why we would talk about it. And hopefully in the next couple of minutes, make sense of the importance of it. So if you've never heard of the idea of covenant theology, hopefully we can take a couple minutes and and uh, pique your interest as to why it's important and why we would talk about it um, and why we think it'd be helpful. So Jeff, I'll let you start. Um, uh, why Why are we talking about covenant theology? Why is it helpful? I've written down some thoughts. Sure. By the way, let me just say this. Yeah. We do not manuscript, the, manuscript these episodes. Um, uh, we we kind of pick a topic. We'll jot down some notes, talk beforehand. So this is very much, and I, I, I'm probably telling anyone who listens something that they're like, yeah, dude, we know, dummy. <laughs> but... Um, but this is very much kind of like almost like if someone were to text one of us and say, uh-huh. "Hey, what do you got, think? About? Can we get coffee and talk about covenant theology?" And he'd be like, "Yeah, sure." Yeah, this is very much kind of like almost like what it would be. Yeah. All right. So, um, so it is very unscripted. Yeah. Very unscripted. Spurgeon wanna... Spurgeon called it ready speech. He says, "Hey, man, you gotta you gotta have this ready speech ready." Yeah. It's just on any topic, so yeah. it's more in that line. Yeah, it's called being dependent upon the Holy Spirit, <laughs> okay? Um, All right. So we're talking about covenant theology. Why does it matter? Who cares? Why does it matter? Who cares? What comes to mind? Uh, I think one of, the help, one, one of the ways it's really, really helpful about covenant theology is just recognizing that uh, everyone is trying to read their Bible a certain way. Everyone is trying to approach the Bible in a way that... Uh, certainly is helpful to them, certainly is meaningful to them. But I think deep down, we also want to read the Bible the right way. Like, how do you read your Bible? Um, and so there, there are um, big picture lenses for looking at the Bible. And one of the most popular today, even though it might not be, uh, the words might not be used today, is something called dispensationalism. And uh, that has been the default lens for 
you know, 90% of the church, the modern church for a long time, uh, that this is how uh, people would read the Bible. So if if you've heard of, uh, oh, what are some of the series that have been done down through the years, even movies that have been made, if, if you've had any kind of end times interest, uh, you've been in the world of mostly dispensationalism. So like Left Behind. Left Behind, the movies, books that are like multi hundred million sales and counting still left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you haven't heard of the word dispensationalism, but that left behind series actually has a, a way of approaching the Bible, a way of reading the Bible. And that lens is uh, a form of dispensationalism. So um, by default, most of us may or may not even know the lens we're actually using to read the Bible, and we've either adopted it from our tradition, or it's intuitive to us, and we just kind of intuitively figure it out, or it came from our families, or it came from the church we grew up in, or if uh, you went to a Christian school, whatever. But uh, there are generally two major systems or lenses of looking at the Bible. One would be called dispensationalism, and the other is called covenant theology. Um, covenant theology has a longer history. Dispensationalism, dispensationalism is kind of a newer uh, lens or a newer way of reading the Bible in the modern church. But it's the most dominant, the most popular, and uh, generally it is, whether you understand it or not, you're kind of defaulting in that world. Uh, in the church today. So covenant theology then is a way of reading the Bible. It's a way of seeing how God um, tells the story of the Bible. It's how, uh, you know, you've got these major redemptive characters in the Bible, and, and it's looking at, well, why are they major redemptive actors in the Bible? And usually you're going to find a covenant in there. Um, so that's the when I think of what's helpful to me, why would I want to know about covenant theology? Um, personally, experientially, I'd say it this way. Uh, the Bible actually comes alive. Um, the story of the Bible gets a little clearer. Uh, it doesn't clear up all the mysteries, obviously. It doesn't clear up everything, but it it actually is like you have many more aha, aha kind of moments. The, the storyline of the Bible actually you start seeing the storyline in the Bible, and that storyline actually helps you uh, with some of the more difficult passages, because sometimes we kind of plow into these difficult passages, like this big old oak tree, and we try to dig it up and get around it, uh, and we don't realize that it's actually a part of a whole forest. And we spent all our time trying getting just this troubling text, not understanding this troubling text, trying to figure out this troubling text when the storyline can actually help you understand what that tree is and and almost untie the knot of difficulty of that particular passage because the storyline helps you read it. Whereas before, you're not even looking at the storyline, you're just looking at the tree and you're lost. You're lost in the woods. So, I think covenant theology is incredibly helpful in this way. It helps you with the storyline of the Bible. It helps you uh, see the whole so that you can look at some difficult parts and actually see them with a little more clarity, and they might make a little more meaningful sense. Um, And covenant theology highlights the storyline being Jesus. And so that's another really 
it's all built around the person and work of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, dispensationalism, sad to say, is not. It's built around uh, almost two storylines, the mm-hmm. story of Israel and the story of the church. And depending on what kind of perspective you have, you have uh, harder or softer lines of distinction between those two. So, I think um, uh, so, some of the things that I, I thought about um, in terms of like a front door, like the, the real on the ground front door, why someone would potentially come in to ever care about covenant theology, like mm-hmm. what would be the driving things you, you already touched on. I think that, that that's probably the biggest one, the unity of the Bible. You've got this really long Bible. Um, the average Christian who's not paid like you and me to study the Bible, right? And so the average person who wakes up in the morning, maybe before work, four in the morning, six in the morning, they're reading their Bible. Yeah. They're like Genesis 15, Abraham, go from yeah. your land. Yeah. Okay, cool. What in the world? All right. I don't know what I just read. Yep. Um, Covenant theology speaks to things like that, saying this is why that is a big deal in Genesis 15 about Abraham. And that's why you see his name pop up like throughout the rest of the whole Bible. Um, but it speaks to the, the unity of the Bible. Uh, again, you, you already hit on that, but the unity of that, how does it all fit together? How is it one story? I think you hear that a lot in popular Christian uh, conversation nowadays. The Bible's one story. Covenant theology is saying, and this is how, let me show you how it's one story. Mm. You hear a lot in popular Christian uh conversation and messaging. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I was teaching our last membership cl- class last night, and and I just said one thing about covenant theology, and, and it was like, okay, how is it all, all about Jesus? Is it all about Jesus because he seems to be the biggest deal? Like, David's a big deal, but Jesus is bigger, so we'll just say it's all about him. You know, like, right. is it, like, how right. is it? So, covenant theology is, is kind of showing the architectural plan of how it all comes together in Jesus, really, like intricately how Jesus relates to Adam, uh, how Jesus relates to Abraham, David. Um, You know, the question of like, why in the world was Adam created and Eve created and then told what, what can seem like this arbitrary random thing, don't eat uh, of this one tree. Like that's very strange. Like what in the world is going on there. Yeah. Uh, covenant theology answers that and makes sense of literally the first chapters of the Bible and what's going on. And, and, and maybe we'll, we'll get into this, but even why, how like you can wake up with what you, what you'll call like a low grade fever of guilt and condemnation. Yeah. Covenant theology makes sense of that feeling that someone may have like on a given Wednesday and how it relates to Adam and the tree and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really good. So it, it answers all these very mm-hmm. on the ground questions. And again, I'm just, I'm kind of pull, I'm, I'm wanting to kind of parse this out because I, I know for me, like something like covenant theology, you know, when I'm first introduced to it, I can go like, what? And why does that matter? And is this just yeah. some like ivory tower theological thing? No, it's, it's very much like, again, if you say it's all about Jesus and I say, well, I agree. Now, can you explain how? Like, how is this huge Bible all about Jesus? Hmm. How is God um, in his workings and dealings and plans all culminating in Jesus? 
mm-hmm. covenant theology, boom, let's try to explain that. Let's do our best to explain how the whole Bible fits together as one story, how God has been breaking in in these things called covenants, um, and how it all culminates in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's excellent. That's my attempt to try to, to draw someone in. So what would be, like, if we're talking, uh, like, if covenant theology obviously uh, has a broad... Um, a broad lens, a broad reach, and then it gets down into the historical uh, particulars of the storyline of the Bible. Why don't we start with like, okay, so what is a covenant? Yeah. How do we uh, how do we define covenant? And there's been incredible um, ways that that's been approached. And I, what I have found most helpful is understanding covenant as a binding relationship or a legal relationship. So is it legal? Yes. Is it only legal? No, it's a relationship. Is it a relationship? Yes. Is it only a relationship? No, it's legal relationship. Mm-hmm. A lot like marriage, and that's why marriage is always likened as a covenant relationship. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's actually covenant kind of gets down to reality. It's a way of describing reality. It's a way of describing how God has set things up, how God has designed things in their ultimate reality and meaning. And so in one way, when we're talking about covenant theology and we're talking about covenant, we're actually tapping into ultimate reality, how things are, how things uh, work, how they've been designed. And so covenant theology will say that the creation of the world is actually a covenant reality, uh, that God's um, making of creation was him cutting a covenant with creation. And so woven into the very fabric, the spiritual fabric and meaning and reality of creation is covenant, that that's a covenant-making process. So God has a binding relationship with creation. And then when we move towards the church, he's going to have that binding relationship with the church. And so when we talk about a binding re- relationship, that's a that's a deeply rooted, most fundamental essence of a relationship in reality. So then we're going to move to, um, well, what kind of binding relationship is it? Is it one of grace? Uh, is it one of performance? And then we're off into a, another discussion that we'll mm-hmm. have, I'm sure, many times in the rest of our time in covenant theology. So a binding relationship is one of the most helpful definitions I've heard. Um, oaths, oaths, oaths and yes. vows, and 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 you can tell me because because there's even even in our world, not not just like the church at large, but even in the reformed world, there's debate among about covenant theology. But um, really, even to kind of just to to go from there and then try to go a little detail, uh, like a step further in terms of covenant and oaths and these binding relationships we start to see really kind of two things happening in the scriptures, kind of two different kind of covenants. Um, one may be um, there's obligations. It's very if-then kind mm-hmm. of covenant. It's very uh, God to people. If you fill in the blank, then, then I, you will be blessed, and yeah. then I will bless you, and, yeah. and I will give you life. But then we also see covenants that are uh, god uh, promising, mm-hmm. I'm going to do this. Yeah. Period. Yeah. I'm going to do this. And 
um, and we'll get into it. Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to create a big family from you, and mm-hmm. and the whole world's going to be blessed. Yep. Pretty quickly, we see Abraham doesn't seem to totally trust God because he fears that he's going to be killed and his wife's going to be taken because she's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And uh, pretty quickly, he starts to just kind of seem to like screw things up. Yeah. But it turns out that God actually does it. So it's not this if-then thing. It's just this like covenant of grace, this promise. So again, I'm just trying to take one step further into like covenant doesn't always, that there's different kinds of yeah. covenants that pop up yeah. at, at play. Um, and then also not, not to try to like get ahead of you, I'm just trying to kind of yeah. Uh, bounce this conversation back and forth to kind of like get into the details in the scriptures we we see these um sub covenants uh we see these specific covenants with people like abraham mm-hmm. or adam mm-hmm. noah abraham david, uh, david moses moses in that order mm-hmm. i'm just kidding not in that order um uh, we see these sub covenants but these are actually the outworkings which, and maybe we can just kind of go here right now. Yeah. These are actually outworkings of these bigger, broader covenants yeah. between God, God, yeah. and himself, <laughs> right. Um, right. and God in his world. Yes. These bigger covenants uh-huh. that then begin to play out in these like real historic sub covenants. So, do you want to. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, uh, let's right. just throw out terms, and we're just going to fill it in as we go. So, okay. generally, there's there's three global covenants in covenant theology. There's three cosmic covenants, if you will, and then there'll be historical manifestations of those that we'll see, like what uh, we were just talking about. So, one global covenant that uh, is initially seen in creation is the covenant that God makes with Adam and then through Adam to the rest of us and all of creation. Uh, And that has been called um, the covenant of works. Um, So it's a binding relationship with Adam and the binding structure is performance and work and obedience. Uh, It's conditional and that's where we got that command uh, in the garden to not eat from this tree that gave us that hint. Um, and so what you're finding in that original covenant, just real quickly, you have all of uh, God's creatures that he makes are spoken into being by the power of his word. And so creation is a worded thing, which is what covenant is. It's a worded relationship. And and so all the servants uh, that are, if you look at Genesis 1 through 3, all the servants are obeying. God says, let there be light. Light says, yes, sir. Uh, and God says, let there be, let there be. And there was. The response of creation is to obey God's word. It's man does not live by uh, bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So all of creation lives and exists and finds its form and uh, its formlessness is overthrown by form through the Word of God. Its meaning is given by the Word of God. So all that's happening, and then when you get to God's prized creature, it's like, okay, well, this prized creature, will he live by every word from the mouth of God? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we get the test. We get this, will he? God gives his word, his worded being, his prized creation, his prized creature, and, and Adam doesn't. And that wrecks everything. So we start with this global covenant uh, of a 
binding relationship that's based on obedience and being a servant and responding to God's word like, yes, uh, I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. That's the dynamic uh, of what has been called the covenant of life, covenant of works. Um, Since then, that covenant was broken by Adam, and Mm -hmm. therefore all of us, and the invasion Mm -hmm. of sin and the fall and all of that, God had another global covenant. And that global covenant is that he actually makes with Adam right on the spot. And that happens in Genesis 3. He Mm -hmm. actually binds himself to a sinner. So this is something radical, and this is something that the covenant of works should have brought in a final condemnation, but it didn't. Instead, creation went to a corruption reality to actually a whole new reality is happening as God is now relating to sinful, broken people by grace, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the second global covenant, which is a covenant of grace. And that one stretches from Genesis 3 to whoever the last human being on this planet is. So really, you could look at, you could almost draw like a, uh, a dome. If you just take, you go, you start from Adam, and then you draw this, this uh, half circle over all human history. We're all living under the covenant of grace right now. Um, the covenant of works was broken. Uh, God entered into a relationship with fallen, broken, uh, hostile, uh, sinful human beings, Adam and us, which is now the church, right? By grace, he relates to us. He binds himself to us by grace. That's the, so that's where you'll see throughout the historical uh, realities of the Bible, you'll see God making these, incre- it's all promise, it's all promise to Abraham, it's all promise, it's all promise to David, right? And then we'll talk about Moses in a second, probably, or another time, but that's the covenant of grace mm-hmm. we're all living in. But then you got to ask yourself, well, how can, the, how can God bind himself to a sinner? How can God, like, have a relationship with the ungodly? And that gets us to our third global covenant, and that is the, the covenant of works, part two. And this is the covenant that God makes with his son, the substitute human, the Lord and servant, the one who does live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the one who is the second Adam and the true Israel. And he actually um, fulfills the covenant of works that Adam broke. And because he fulfills it, he takes the penal uh, penalty of that covenant, which is final condemnation and death, and he positively meets the requirements of righteousness that Adam didn't meet, and he does that on behalf of us. And because of that, the, the covenant, it's called the covenant of redemption or covenant of works part two, uh, that that sits underneath and is the engine for the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. So that drives... Genesis 3, when Adam is still breathing Mm -hmm. and Eve are still breathing, Mm -hmm. all the way to the last human being, the way that God is dealing with the world is now through grace. Um, What drives it is the the soil of it, the foundation of it, the engine of it is the person and work of Christ and him fulfilling the covenant of works. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's why Paul actually brings that distinction, those two realities out in Romans 5. Anyhow, that's a flyover, three global covenants. If you keep that, if you just start with like, what is a covenant? It's a binding relationship. Well, 
what kind of binding relationships are there? And biblically and historically, even historical manifestations of these from suzerain to royal grants, a suzerain is, it's a performance-based. It's a nation conquering Mm -hmm. another nation in the ancient world and saying, dude, you're going to do this. And if you don't, I'm coming in and I'm wiping you out. And when I go to war, you will be my ally, or I'm after I'm done, I'm coming and wiping you out. So that's even historically, these things are well documented in mm-hmm. history because they're touching reality. They're mm-hmm. an re- echo of reality. So you have a global covenant of works. You have a, a binding relationship. Well, what kind of binding relationships are there? There's a performance one called works, and there's a grace one based on promises and gospel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so there's two global covenant of works, one with Adam, one with Jesus. And then therefore we can have a covenant of grace. And so, so, and just to, um, maybe, uh, again, just kind of, uh, bring in some details on this. Um, this is where, w- when it comes to the, the, uh, what's been called covenant of creation or covenant of works, what we see with Adam, right? And Adam is our, our federal head, you know? So Adam falls, we fall. Adam sins, we sin. We sin in him, we fall in him, we are guilty in him. Um, this covenant of of works um, stands. Humanity has breached the covenant. Yeah. And humanity is in breach of that covenant. We yes. are born, uh, all of us, in breach of the covenant. Uh, dead in sin, corrupted, guilty. Again, in Adam, that's what the scripture would say, mm-hmm. in Adam we are covenant breakers. Mm-hmm. So um, I, th- I think it, it's Horton. Horton says we're all in a uh, we're all in a relationship with God. Yeah. Um, this may be more kind of my paraphrase. It just depends how it's going. Yeah. We're born in a covenant with God. We're born in this relationship with God in Adam, and it's going really bad mm-hmm. because we've breached it, we've broken it in our sin, and left on our own. That's it. That's it. We are under this covenant of creation that we have failed. We are in Adam on our own. Mm-hmm. Um. Genesis 3, uh, as you mentioned, we get this announcement that this that God is going to send this offspring to crush Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, so we already have this this uh, promise of grace. Mm-hmm. There we go. We've, okay, thank God. Mm-hmm. Truly, he has grace uh, on sinners and, um, and sends Jesus, this new federal head who fulfills the covenant of works, fulfilling all righteousness. Yeah. So that those who not through works, not people who fulfill the covenant of works, because that it's done. Yeah, it's done through faith. That's the key of of the difference between works and faith. Mm-hmm. Works is me committing to saying, you know what? I think I can fulfill the covenant of works before God. I think I can be righteous. I can be perfect. I can have this if then relationship with Him. I can justify myself. I can yeah. justify myself before God. Yep not realizing that that's an absolute impossibility. Yep. Um, you've already failed. You've already breached the covenant. You're already sinful. So there's this other option, mm-hmm. this covenant of grace in and fulfilled in Jesus Christ that you receive through faith alone, not not works. It is not a, if I do this, then this. It is, if Jesus did it, mm-hmm. then I get all the blessing and I get all the life. And Jesus did do it. And so uh, I'm either now in Adam... Mm-hmm. 
seeking to justify myself by myself, by my works, or I'm in a different head, a different federal head. I'm in Jesus Christ. He represents, he's my representative before the Father. He's my mediator before the Father mm-hmm. as the one who has fulfilled and established this covenant of grace between me and God that is purely one way. It is It is not a calling if you do this, uh, we'll have a good relationship. Yeah. It is calling you've blown it. Jesus did it all. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, pe- people say, and I think it's a helpful, we we are saved by works. Yes. It's just not our works. Yes. It's the work of Jesus to fulfill righteousness, to take the penalty for mm-hmm. my sin, as you said, to rise from the dead in victory, conquering sin, uh, death, Satan on mm-hmm. my behalf. And now I just receive the benefit of yeah. his work for all of eternity. So imagine now, because of the work of Christ, this what we're talking, this global covenant of redemption, right? This second covenant of works, um, of actually fulfilling what Adam didn't. There's only a covenant, a binding relationship of grace. So God binds himself to you and me, to the ungodly, by grace. Yeah. It's not bound by my work, my obedience. Mm-hmm. It's not bound by my sincerity. It's not bound by how strong I'm holding on to him. Mm-hmm. It's not bound by anything I do. It's bound by all that Jesus has done. Therefore, God loves the ungodly, justifies the ungodly, has mercy and grace upon grace upon grace. So it's mm. it's this the picture again of a binding relationship and it's it's manifested itself in cultures since you know the beginning of time as far back as they have them there's been oaths and covenants suzerain treaties that have been done and royal grants that kings have made. Royal grants are clear grace promised. They're not mm-hmm. based on any work of obedience. Suzerain treaties historically have been performance-based. You do if and then, conditional realities. Mm-hmm. But the picture is God actually uh, taking himself and wrapping a cord around this old covenant way. You take two arms, hold them up, and they tie a binding around the two arms, even slit blood, so the blood mingles. This is a binding relationship like it can't mm-hmm. be broken mm-hmm. uh that's that binding is grace it can't be broken mm-hmm. i think it's important to to note too that uh even i mean if you're looking like gosh you know biblically where, where are you seeing this well we're talking uh again in a in a lens view a storyline view of the bible but we can zoom in anywhere you want to zoom mm-hmm. in i mean paul spends the first three chapters of romans 3 actually laying this out mm-hmm. He ends Romans 3 with everyone being silent before the court of God. He just basically, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, he recites all of, re- all of history, human mm-hmm. history, under the covenant of works. Mm-hmm. And then in 321, he shifts, mm-hmm. he shifts to Jesus. But he, he ends Romans 3 with the way all of us under the covenant of works is that we're, we're guilty. Mm-hmm. That's why we feel condemned, because we are condemned. That's mm-hmm. why we are miserable, because we are miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, too, it's good, it's helpful to note that uh, the, prom- the, the condition of obedience in the garden was final, full condemnation and death. So the game should have been over then. Mm-hmm. The, moment, the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, 
the world should have ended. Mm -hmm. The mere fact that they were still breathing meant that God was doing something radically strange and surprising and unknown in the world, so much so that the angels, as Peter says, peer over the battlements of heaven. They can't comprehend grace. Yeah, It's a foreign yeah. idea. It's not woven into the fabric of creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the law is and righteousness mm-hmm. and uh, obedience and performances. So, so right then, you know that, oh, my word, so by sin entering the world, it was actually a backhanded grace because it, the game should have ended. Mm-hmm. That's why when God came into the garden, they're, they're running because they know the judge is coming to judge them. Uh, it's not that he's coming to walk with them in the cool of the day. He's coming to judge them in the whirlwind of the day. This is a day of judgment. You, uh, you disobeyed. Um, but instead, uh, the world went into brokenness mm-hmm. and fallenness, but it's still here. Yeah. So now we know yeah. some other thing has entered. Some other reality has just invaded this world, and that's called grace, the covenant of grace. It's called a surprising God that we didn't expect. We yes. wouldn't expect, right? The law's written on our hearts. The best we can really understand about God on our own. Yes. He's the creator. He's powerful. He's glorious. We, we, we can understand this through creation, through our own conscience. Yep. And he's worthy of my allegiance and he's worthy of my honor and my worship and my obedience. And it makes sense that a just holy God would would justly and in his holiness judge me yeah. for my disobedience. And that's where our hearts and our conscience stop on our own. Yes. We don't naturally um, come up with the gospel. The best we can do is come up with this idea of like, God helps those who help themselves. Like surely I have to do at least something right. to get whatever God is out there on my side. Somehow I can activate him. Somehow he'll give yeah. me his attention. Yeah. And instead we get this surprising God who comes into Adam and Eve. Where are you? Um, there are curses. Mm-hmm. There's this corruption, like mm-hmm. you're saying. And then, uh, and then he clothes them. Yeah. What in the world is going on? <laughs> right. I'm going to send someone right. to annihilate the yes. snake. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. not going to send someone to annihilate you. Yeah. That's what we would expect. Yeah. So we deserve. Yeah. I'm going to send someone to annihilate the snake and let's get some clothes on. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. Um, okay. Next week, what we'll do is we'll get into some of the details. We'll get like, that, that's what I want to do next week is let's go through kind of these, these on the ground uh, a little bit more, maybe on Adam and the tree yeah. on, on, uh, I'm going to crush the snake on, on Abraham, yep. um, on Moses, uh, David. That's kind of what I want to do is, is these are these, these big historic, uh, covenants, sub covenants, of these bigger ones that we've just talked about as the story actually unfolds. Mm -hmm. Because we have this covenant of grace that God is going to save people by grace. How does that actually play out? It plays out through this long historic story that involves guys like Abraham, Moses, David, down to Jesus. Which is why guys like Matthew, uh, writing Matthew, care about opening with a genealogy. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we'll do that next week. Peace. Peace.